This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings, we fill in radio silence with things we hate more and some Nordic rock. I went to the museum and tried real hard to check my cynicism at the door while viewing postmodern art and colonial portraitures. Turns out the group of seven is really 12 angry men and the great Emily Carr. This is Cynicism in the Art Gallery. Woman, woman, tell me your name. Let me have my life reclaimed. Waiting, wondering, all of my life. Trying to love Hey, Matt. How's it going, buddy? Not too bad, not too bad. It's been uh, It's been a little while since we've chatted. It seems like a long time, yeah, and even trying to send you some text messages, I don't hear back, like, I'm like, oh, how's Philly doing? So, uh, yeah, I, I yeah, think it's, uh, yeah. we're long overdue for a catch-up. We are, we are, and we're long overdue for an episode. I got a text message from Perry, uh, co-host of uh, The Pod Stuff and uh, Hello Life WTF, and he was saying, uh, radio silence lately, dot, 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 WTF, Uh <laughs> <laughs> so yes, I, the, we have had some radio silence uh, lately. That's hilarious. I got a uh, Facebook message from Lindsay Johnson, uh, the other co-host of both those shows, um, asking like, is Phil okay? Like, I, I don't mean to be stalkerish, but I uh, just want to make sure the guy's okay. I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's fine. I think he's just really busy. So uh, Phil, tell all the listeners what you've been up to the last like 10 days or so. Uh, what have I been up to? Uh, well, uh, life got in the way. Uh, and then, uh, you know, this continual PhD project. But the beginning of January is always a really difficult time because it's a new semester, a new term. Uh, so we get new assignments uh, at school and all this kind of work stuff needs to get handed in and done. So it's been uh, it's been a kind of hectic three weeks for me anyway. Yeah, and it throws your whole kind of routines out of whack as well because you got to like go to campus, yep. go for those orientation things, all that sort of stuff, and it's kind of hard to yep. get in, in, back into that groove. And nor and you said on yep, a previous yep. show that you're taking a few weeks off to recharge, which we said was really good. Now it's uh, the tough part is actually getting back into it. Yeah, exactly. And like yeah. you know, recharging is always good, but then getting back into it is difficult. And I find the month of January, this January in particular, I don't know why, has been just really kind of, it's been hard. Like, I don't know if it's weather or if it's, um, you know, a new batch of students. I don't know what it is, but it's just been hard to get back into it. Um, yeah, but the here weather we uh, has been. Here we are. Yeah, the weather has been all over the place. You know, it's a, it goes like from very freezing to like plus, uh, plus five, like minus 20 to plus five constantly. So. Um, speaking yeah, of, uh, yeah. bad weather conditions, uh, have you gotten a new car yet or what's going on with the uh, car? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I got the new car. Um, so our Twitter follower, so this is the, so here's the story. Okay. So I posted a picture of the smashed up old car on Twitter and, uh, people were commenting back and forth and, uh, li- listener of the podcast, I'm not going to call them out. If you follow our Twitter, you, you would have seen this. Um, but she said, uh, oh, it looks like you're going to have to buy a Volkswagen. And I was like, what? Like, why, why would you say that? She goes, well, you pulled into a Volkswagen dealership. Like, I know that place. Like, I'm from the area. I know where you are. So we laughed back and forth. Turns out, Matt, I did buy a Volkswagen. Ended up buying a Tiguan. Uh, we wanted, uh, so, you know, that came true. Um, so, yeah, we wanted something uh, all-wheel drive, sturdy, and the Tiguan kind of fit uh, the specs on anything, on everything. So, yeah, we've been driving around with that for a week and a bit now. It, uh, it's a good vehicle. I, I like it. I'll do a full, I think on a patio session, I'll do a full kind of review 
of yeah, the vehicle. We'll do, it's my first we'll do, Volkswagen. Uh, we'll do a Tiguan versus Prius review. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that would be fun. Yep. I mean, <laughs> um, just out of the gate, I use like a lot more gas. I'm just going to say that. Um, like 9.5 liters for 100 kilometers. Uh, not used to that Ooh. sort of level of consumption. Um, but it's four-wheel drive, right? Yeah, no, so you got to take it. Hey, Phil, guess what, man? What? Um, I found a random discarded bag of candy. I don't know how old it was, but I found it in my mail room <laughs> of the apartment that I live in. And I've been pounding through this, like, anonymous candy for the last, like, four days. So that's pretty much all I've been <laughs> up to. <laughs> that's Maddie's update. That's Maddie's update. That's uh, pretty much all I got. So why don't you let everybody know what they're listening to here, Phil? Welcome, uh, new and we're Turning listeners, this is Semi-Intellectual Musings, a podcast that focuses on social sciences, humanities, and arts. We do so by book reviews. We do so by interviewing other people. We do so by talking about everyday life and how it connects to the social sciences, humanities, and arts. Um, Matt, it's been compared to a fireside chat. It's been likened to having a beer at a pub. Um, And that one kind of podcast that Review Us said... It's none of those things. Um, so, you know, we don't really know what it can be or what it isn't. Um, but, I, I, you know, I, I have a feeling, Matt, that we sit down, we chat about what's going on in our life. Uh, that's not fluffy. That's important stuff. Uh, because I think uh, other people enjoy it, too. Other people are going through the kind of hardships, the kind of stuff that we're going through. And uh, we get to connect it to a passion of ours, which is the social sciences, humanities, and arts. That's beautiful, Philly. Nice little soliloquy there. Um, <laughs> well, on a more academic level, I um, and along those same lines, I have a new idea for like full length episodes. Um, I like the when we say it's like sitting down at a campus pub. Sure, it's like a fireside chat, but that's a little too intimate for me. So, like when we're at university and we're sitting down <laughs> at the campus pub, we usually were flushing out ideas and making connections and expanding our paper topics. So I thought. What would be an interesting idea is to kind of resurrect old undergrad papers that we did or maybe some papers we did in grad school that we never had time to do anything with and kind of wanted, always wanted to expand it. So we can kind of bring back that idea of going to the campus pub and working on a paper, but let's bring it into our podcast. So what do you think about that? I like it. You like that? I like that a lot. I have have some old papers that are sitting around that could need some uh, resurrecting. Yeah, for sure. And it's like... It'd be fun, too, because you just sort of, you can send me your paper and I can send mine to you and we can read each other's stuff. And yeah, it'd be kind of like going back to the uh, campus pub at Carleton. I got a couple of ideas just off the top of my head. I wrote two papers. Um, One is an undergrad, one is a grad student on uh, my experiences of being a casino blackjack dealer. I did that for like a year in the past. Um, So I think that would be an interesting one to like add more topics to. And then I also did a paper on... Uh, the Soviet Union's uh, athletic system. And I don't know, for me, it's like one of those undergrad papers where I did so much research on, but like it was just an undergrad paper. So I think that would be interesting. Yep, yep. And I actually have an idea of a guest who we might be able to have on to help us with that that one there. Too. Ooh, so, ooh. Yeah, so stay tuned there. for those. Yeah. What about yourself? Do you have any ideas? Uh, well, uh, for that, yeah, actually I do. I have uh, some papers that I've written around graffiti, uh, and graffiti writers, um, art, uh, you know, graffiti art. So I think I'd like to resurrect those and talk uh, a little bit about those with you. 
I think, um, and then I have another one that is more kind of, uh, uh, what do I want to call it? Like pseudo psychology, I guess. Uh, but the way in which uh, meditation and mindfulness can have a very positive impact on our psychological states. And I linked that in particular to prison populations and um, the way in which uh, meditation and long distance kind of transference uh, can help in uh, rehabilitation efforts of the incarcerated populations. So I think those are kind of two topics I want to talk about. On the one Sounds hand, awesome, art and graffiti, street life, and on the other, uh, incarcerated populations, jails, and mindfulness. Kind of two different worlds. Yeah, but I can, I'm like already abuzz with ideas just like uh, when we're at Mike's place at Carlton. So yeah, I'm looking well, forward to this go. idea. I think it'd be fun. So, But before we go down uh, that rabbit hole, Matt, uh, what do you hate more? So <laughs> what do you hate more is a game that we play. Uh, it's kind of replaced uh, some of the other games that we've played. But this one in particular is generally two things that are pretty bad. And we debate the merits and demerits of them and figure out which one is worse. But, Matt, this week, a suggestion came in from Anthony Von Dessauer, the creator of the Curse of Silver Lake podcast. He said that we should do a what do you hate more about two things that are actually good. So debate the merits and demerits of two good things, but then figure out which one we actually hate. So it would be like, Matt, do you hate sunshine or lollipops more? <laughs> I right off the top of my yeah. head, sunshine for sure. But I think you knew the answer. Yeah, to that one. yeah, yeah. I think so too. Um, okay, but here's the one that I want us to debate, Matt. Uh, what do you hate more? Someone picking up your bar tab after a long night out, or finding forgotten cash in your jacket pocket? Oh, so kind of that's two a really one, good things. Those that are amazing hard, things. Yeah. So this is like a real right. test of our cynicism, eh? Like how can we find yes. terribly negative things about great things? Okay. Um, I would yep. say just like initially someone picking up your bar tub after a long night out, like a really long night, because then you feel really indebted yep. uh, to them. So it's yep. like that yep. idea of reciprocity with Marcel Mouse from a couple episodes back, right? Where you have to pay that right. tab yeah. back. So I would yep. say that, yeah, for sure. Someone picking up your bar tab. What yep. about you? You know, I'm gonna, so picking up the bar tab is nice. You know, I find, you know, especially if we've been out for a long night and you say, no, no, Phil, I got it. I kind of see that as like, um, a friendship gesture, right? So you say, well, I'm going to show you how much of a friend I am. I'm going to pay a hundred, hundred bucks, whatever. Now, if I pick up a jacket in the spring that I haven't worn all summer and I find like 50 or $60 in it, I'm really mad at myself. Because I could have used that money months ago. And like, who am I to forget money lying around? Leave it just lying around. Forget it in a jack pocket. So now I'm mad at myself. And then that money is like, well, I should have invested it. I haven't used it for the last several months. What am I going to use it on now? So it's not even really spendable money at this point anymore, right? It's, it's, it's guilt money. It's, Matt, it's like blood diamonds. The, really? the money has blood all over it. Really? How did it get well, there? You know, I, I was thinking, like, what about when you, like, throw your, jam your hand into the pocket of a jacket you haven't worn in a long time, and you stab it on a pen that is, doesn't have a cap yeah, on, yeah. and then you get your blood all over your bloody yeah. cash there? Yeah. It's the same thing, Matt. It's the it's same, the exact thing. same it, thing. It's 
It's the exact same thing, yeah. And uh, you know, I would also say that it's like finding a half pack of smokes if you're a smoker mm. uh, in a jacket pocket because you're like, oh my god, I could have used these weeks ago when I was dying of my uh, addiction, right? And now mm. they're kind of stale, and now you don't know. Like, should I have them again? Guilt-driven things that you find in your pocket. No, you know what? For me, I hate finding money in my pocket more than someone picking up my bar tab. Yeah, you know what? You've swayed me, man. I'm, I'm on your side. I hate uh, finding stuff in my pocket. It's usually, uh, yeah, it's usually guilt-ridden and uh, guilt-ridden tragedy after after you find it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here's here's another one that could be guilt-ridden, Matt. What do you hate more, snuggles from cats or snuggles from dogs? <laughs> snuggles from cats, I hate more, of course, man. I don't know how to interact with cats. They they kind of sketch me out, and I never know where I stand. And <laughs> When you try to snuggle with them, they'll, they're just like pawing at your chest, but their little retractable evil talons come out and just grab you like right through your t-shirt. And it's like, get out of <laughs> here, man. And then you try to throw it off you. Right. And then they're like these like jiggly skeleton things. And it's like, ah, am I breaking your ribs here? And you're just like, yeah, get off of me. So yeah, I hate snuggles <laughs> Matt is Matt is not a cat person. <laughs> what about you? Snuggles uh, from cats or snuggles from dogs? I hate snuggles from dogs more. And and I'll tell you why, because once the dog has latched onto you, yes, the cat may tear you to pieces with its visceral talons. But once the dog has latched onto you, when you want to get up, it makes the most saddest face ever. Like, because those snuggles or that pat could continue forever. And breaking away from it just makes you feel like an asshole. Uh, at least a cat, when, it's, when you're done, it's done. It's like, yeah, I didn't care about that either. Um, but a dog <laughs> will love you to death, right? And that puppy, those puppy eyes and that kind of look that it gives you, no. Hate it. <laughs> so it's all about guilt, it seems like. Eh? Guilt and uh, rejection and shame. <laughs> That's awesome. We learned something That's... new here today. That's why we do these we, intro we segments, We did learn something right? new. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Matt, you know what we don't hate? Um, we don't hate music from the band Evil Knievel. Uh, have you ever heard of Evil, Evil Knievel? Well, I met Evil Knievel once when I was a kid, when oh. when I was like eight okay. in like Portland, but uh, I don't think this is the same guy. That would be amazing if he came back from the dead. And this is not the same the guy. I'm talking, about, uh, I'm talking about blues filtered through a 1970s distortion with a hint of 1960s rock, a voice full of blues and smoke, drums that smash the permafrost, a bass that moves snowdrifts, Guitars that last stronger than a boreal wind. The strength of the north with the soul of blues and the energy of rock. Evil Knievel, the Nordic Rocks Ambassadors. Evil Knievel is a Quebec City quartet founded in 2007. The band is made up of Jean-Francois, vocalist and guitarist, Metsur drummer Manuel on the bass, and Seb rhythm guitar. After spending months at the 46th parallel chiseling its music, Evil Knievel is now launching its first record, um, now they're on to their second or third record, uh, by the way. Uh, entirely recorded in analog mode uh, by the band and mixed and mastered by Audio Beck from Quebec. Um, stories of dangerous women, broken hearts, identity crisis, territorial disposition, courageous snowplows, Evil Knievel builds a universe, breathing a new life into the tired stoner rock genre. Stoner rock is dead, Matt. Hail Nordic rock. If Evil <laughs> Knievel doesn't make you want to dance... Then you're more frozen than a mammoth prisoner of the Siberian soil. Uh, so here is their title track off their 2013 album, Winter Rider. 
Welcome back, everyone. This is Semi-Intellectual Musings. I'm your co-host, Phil Primo. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Matt, uh, today we're going to be talking about art galleries, some museology, muse- museumology. How do you pronounce that? <laughs> museumology? Museology? Yeah, okay. You got it. Museology. Usology. Yeah, let's go with that. All right. Walking sure. around right. the museum, Why are we pretending talking? you know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we talking about art galleries today, Matt? Uh, because I went to the art gallery, uh, the National Gallery, on Thursday with my lovely wife and my adorable daughter, Violet. So <laughs> that's why I'm like, why not take a take a bunch that's of pictures why. and do a do an episode about it? Yeah. So <clears throat> they have a new wing at the National Gallery um, where they've combined uh, indigenous works with um, early Canadian colonial. Works, so I kind of wanted to see that, okay. but it's also the art gallery is like a nice quiet space to walk around. You know the building, Phil. It's like all poured concrete. It's very grand, but it's also really, really quiet. So, um, yeah. you know, and museums are th- free on Thursday night here in Ottawa. So we're gonna start checking them off our list. So it was the art gallery this week. Um, so very aside nice. from the indigenous artists and artifacts and the new wing that turned out to be not so new, let's say. Um, I also wanted to talk about the Group of Seven, which is probably Canada's most famous collection of artists. Then we'll talk a little bit about modern art, um, maybe some Impressionists. I got in trouble for taking a picture of uh, Van Gogh. <laughs> um, and then yeah, no pictures, uh, finish man. off no with pictures. some contemporary experimental artists. So like those big weird displays. So um, yeah, a few topics awesome. to cover and then we'll listen to some music throughout, I guess. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so before we get into it... Um, you know, we did this kind of walkthrough when we did Hockey Night at the Museum, uh, when you went to the uh, hockey exhibit. Um, one of the things that I love doing when you go into these places, give us or give me kind of a walkthrough. How, what is it like when you walk into the building? Because I think that kind of sets the stage uh, for the story of what's going on in there. What's it like when you walk in uh, to this uh, art gallery? Okay, so uh, because I had Mel and Violet with me, I dropped them off uh, at the little ring in front, and they just went in and um, kind of disappeared. Mel's uh, phone was dying on batteries, so I kind of lost them at that point. But anyway, I go and park the car. I walk up to the building, and as anyone who's been there knows, there's this gigantic black spider that is right at the front. It's like, I would say, 45 feet tall. And I don't even know, like 45 feet in diameter. It's just humongous black spider. So you walk past that, um, try not to make eye contact. You go in the front doors and you walk up this very, very long ramp. It's almost the opposite of the Defen bunker. It's like a ramp going up. And you get to the main foyer and you're presented with basically three wings to choose from. Now, as I said, I lost Mel immediately. I tried to phone her and text her as okay. I'm walking up the ramp. And she's nowhere to be seen. So I had to go process of elimination on three three wings. So I went to the uh, the new um, indigenous colonial sort of wing, I guess you'd call it. Walked all the way through yeah. there, couldn't find her. And then when I got out, Mel finally uh, called me from the uh, coat check um, and uh, we met up. So that's that was the panicked initial 20 minutes of getting to the museum. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> Walk. So, what? Where did you go first? What did you end up seeing first? 
So after I met uh, Mel in the foyer there, we did go into the um, indigenous colonial wing. So maybe um, <clears throat> maybe a year ago, I just started seeing ads for it maybe like a few months ago, but about a year ago, they made us change where instead of the big showy wing, it has the reflecting pond and it has all the important Canadiana paintings. So all the early settler paintings, um, recently settled lands, some group of seven, and a few Emily cars, stuff like this, right? Like all the big works of Canadian art are in this okay. big showy wing, right? So what they did basically um, is they just put some indigenous art in the first sort of section of the very first wing that you walk in of this uh, showy wing. And then it just okay. goes straight up like colonial settler uh, works from there on. So um, yeah, so it was kind of interesting. I have some pictures of it, so we can kind of start talking about those a bit. But uh, yeah, it was kind of odd, the coupling of indigenous and colonial art in this wing. So Yeah, and it seems a little like it, odd to me that that's kind of what you walk into first. Um, I mean, it, it like it's a very big part of Canadian history, and it's in kind of the news and on everyone's kind of minds right now. Um but the coupling of in like the celebration of Canadians indigenous populations with the kind of colonial past seems odd to me. And it seems like it kind of, it goes against like uh, the politics of the day. So I don't know, like maybe we can, maybe you can kind of walk me through this, but is there sort of like a politics of spatial placement that's going on right now? Yeah. Uh, like, like are the two meant to be there in conversation with each other or diametrically opposed or I honestly it was that's that's interesting the conversation are diametrically opposed I didn't think about that um so you walk in and there's <clears throat> on the right so if you scroll down in the document that I sent you you can see these pictures I'm talking about Phil but there's these Dorset uh, carvings and the Dorset people were uh, pre-Inuit people that span from say Labrador all the way to Yukon like all across the north and they're known for their amazing intricate carvings right whether they're pendants or harpoon tips. So I have a picture of them there. It's kind of hard to see, but they're very detailed. That was interesting. Then they have this amazing black and white seal um, that I think would probably be West Coast um, associated with a longhouse. Um, and then, so that's on, the seal is on the left-hand side, the Dorset carvings on the right. And then there's this big sort of West Coast panel, uh, kind of the side of a longhouse. Um, on this right in front of you and then around that corner is just straight colonial uh, paintings uh, for the rest okay. of the exhibit and then there's a few random inclusions so there's the uh, what I thought was one of the best sculptures there it's by um, Kigak Ashuka K-I-U-G-A-K A-S-H-O-O-K-A and it's called Bird Creature it's from 1990 and it's this awesome uh, stone carved Sculpture, so that's an example of modern indigenous art. That, but it was just sort of, it's kind of anecdotally and haphazardly sprinkled throughout the rest of the wing, and then you have this very obvious placement right up at the front. So, well, I'm glad to hear that they've included some modern indigenous art. I think one of the critiques of uh, museums that wish to celebrate indigenous work is that they haven't included some of the modern works that they've focused on kind of um, stereotypical indigenous mm. culture. Uh, and as we know, uh, cultures evolve, they change, they're continually expanding, contracting. 
The same goes for indigenous cultures, right? And it's a point, um, I think, of contention right now when we say we need to celebrate indigenous culture and art. That doesn't mean celebrating the kind of works from years gone by and saying that they remain in stasis. We can celebrate contemporary stuff too. Yeah, so that's an interesting point, the juxtaposition in time, I'd I'd say. Um, So the next uh, three pictures that I have there um, are all from bygone eras, I guess, Um, but they're relatively modern. So they're from the 1800s, right? And one of them is um, an incense burner. Um, It's kind of beige Mm. there, if you see. And then there's some Inuit carved... um, uh, figures that are very, very finely detailed, including it on the right-hand side, there's like these tiny, tiny miniature ones that look like they're like maybe four to five millimeters tall, and they're all carved. So you see like the continuation from the Dorset people there, the continuation of the tradition. Right. And then right. below that is like these very intricately carved, um, I think they're walrus tusk or narwhal tusk uh, canes. So. Mm. You can see, like, they're trying to, I would say, show a continuous line uh, through time. But as I said, it was just sort of like, here's this, isn't that pretty, isn't that pretty? And they just th- sort of threw them around. And then right next to this stuff from the 1800s is uh, a modern mask, right, that picks up from the traditions. I thought it was beautiful. It was one of the prettiest things I saw there. Um, picks up from the traditions of the past. So you see a continuation. But it's... Uh, you know, it's just sort of there. It's just like, hey, isn't this cool looking? And they just move on. Right. And I think this was yeah. one of your critiques uh, from the hockey exhibit as well, right? Was that there were items without context. And um, I'm not a muse- museum expert. I'm not an expert in how do you display artifacts. But it seems like if um, you're going there, and this is twice now, that you fail to see kind of the connections between the pieces. Uh, there's a little bit of a problem with the curation of it. Yeah, totally. So at the hockey exhibit, it was the combination of Sheldon Kennedy, who was a victim of sexual assault when he was a minor, uh, right next to uh, Darnell Nurse's uh, gay pride uh, sticks uh, with a pride tape right, on yeah. them. Um, so that was a weird coupling. And then they, the women are all just sort of, in the hockey exhibit, are all just sort of pushed off into the background. Um, so in this example, you're seeing... It's like the the power of representation and colonialism. It's almost like those who are in power are able to tell the official narrative or something like this. Yeah, it's. I think it's like you're touching on uh, the overarching point, right? And it's that um, in relations of colonialism, um, there is a power of representation. So those in power are able to tell the official narrative, quote unquote. Um, and I think it's kind of like Uh, what we say about war, right? The victors uh, are able to write history. Um, I would be surprised if um, many of the staff who worked on the curation were of Indigenous First Nations or Mitzi heritage. Uh, I would suspect that a lot of it is some bureaucratic decision to display some official narrative, right? Uh, What it is to be Canadian, what it is to be Indigenous, uh, how our history is represented, is decided by the artifacts that we put on display. Um, Again, with the Hockey Museum, we saw a clear kind of attempt to shift the narrative, and we talked about that on that episode, but I feel like we're seeing the same thing uh, here, but maybe I'm wrong. 
Yeah, no, it's um, you do see the the combination of, and the attempts at shifting the narrative, and this is why we say culture and um, social norms are so hard to change. They take so much work um, because even though it was interesting to see um, these indigenous works, I've seen a lot of them already in the muse- in that museum. They've just rearranged it. Um, and then, like, if you scroll down on the page just before we maybe cut for a second musical break, I included a few of the sort of cliche um, colonial paintings here. Um, one of them is by uh, Anton uh, Plamondon, <laughs> um, and he was Plamondon. Yeah, it's a, it's a, basically it's a depiction of a Catholic priest um, being tied up by a bunch of indigenous people and about to be executed. Okay, right, and it's from 1841. Um, and then right underneath there, uh, what I thought was really interesting was a, a painting by uh, Joseph Leger. Um, about the cholera plague in Quebec City in 1832. Oh, yeah, that is neat, yeah. So it's kind of interesting that you see these, um, you know, important moments in Canadian history, but they're right next to, um, you know, the victims of the same colonialization that they're depicting there. So I don't know. We could probably Um, go on this for a little bit longer, but maybe we can break this up with some tunes. Yeah, and I think, yeah, so picking up on Joseph's, uh, Joseph Legare, uh, Cholera Plague of 1832. Uh, we have a song, I think appropriately titled, uh, From Evil Knievel. Uh, this is their second song off of their album, Winter Rider. This song is called Power. You can check out Evil Knievel on their Facebook page at Evil Knievel Band. Check them out on Bandcamp. Uh, you know, send them a little message. Uh, EvilKnievel.com is their website. Tell them we've sent you. Here is their second track off their album, Winter Rider Power.
Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we're continuing our discussion of the art gallery. Uh, Matt, uh, Canadian Art Gallery would not be complete if there wasn't something, at least, uh, from the Group of Seven. Uh, please tell me I'm not wrong in that uh, you got to see some Group of Seven work here. Yes, I uh, went and saw the obligatory Group of Seven work. Uh, so yeah. as I continue on in this wing here, um, in the back there is the Group of Seven stuff. And I think Ottawa probably has the most um, Group of Seven works because they painted the Algonquin uh, National Park and the Algonquin region here um, in and around like Ottawa, Montreal area. So the Group of Seven, they're from the 1910s to the 1930s. Um, this might be my favorite period in art. Um, so in this period, you have like Art Deco, you got Futurist stuff, Modern Impressionism, I call it, Surrealism, and of course... The Group of Seven, which is sort of its own thing. They combined a lot of the um, trends and movements that were going on in art at the time and then gave it a distinctly Canadian flavor. And it was kind of like the first time that a group of Canadian artists established their own movement, right? So it was yep, justifiably yep. a big deal. So the Group of Seven and, was... Uh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. And now we refer to them as like almost the creators of Canadiana style uh, art right yeah for sure so everybody so they picked up off of um one artist in particular and they'll talk about it in a sec but every artist that has come after the group of seven either like learned how to paint like them and that's how they learned how to paint or they are painting in response to the group of seven they're either within right, the right. tradition or in juxtaposition to it kind of thing so i'll just rattle off the names really quickly because it's kind of interesting the story behind them um, so it ran from 1920 to 1933. Um, it originally consisted of Franklin Carmichael, um, Lauren Harris, A.Y. Jackson, Frank Johnson, uh, Arthur Lismer, J.E.H. McDonald, and Frederick Varley. And then later, A.J. Casson uh, was invited to join in 1926, and Edward Edwin Holgate uh, became a member in 1930, and Lemoyne Fitzgerald. Uh, joined in 32. So it had a good run. So it's called the Group of Seven, but it's really like the Group of Twelve. Um, and then yeah, uh, yeah. two artists who are commonly associated with the group are Tom Thompson and Emily Carr. So Emily Carr yeah. is probably my favorite uh, painter, and we'll talk about her at the end. But Tom Thompson was actually not a member of the Group of Seven. He died in um, before they formed in 1917. Um, so they all point to Thompson as 
the influence there. And then, like Thompson, Emily Carr, she painted in British Columbia. So she had a lot of, like, it's almost like she she was a, clearly inspired by Tom Thompson. You could see that in the, the forms they use. But the starkness of the color, which is a hallmark of the Group of Seven, is that their colors are really dark. Um, I feel like this was kind of an organic emergence out of painting the west coast of British Columbia, which is a very dark but starkly beautiful kind of landscape. So I have some pictures we can go down. Um, the first one I have there, though, is yeah, actually... Yeah, we'll throw up all these yeah, pictures uh, onto our website here. Oh, yeah, for sure, yeah. I guess that's good to point out. Um, the first picture I threw down there, though, is um, a Cezanne. So I think it's interesting if you look at the Cezanne that I, I included and see, then scroll down and see the, the Tom Thompson ones. You can see the forms are very similar. So you see a longer tradition, I think. So, yeah, yeah what do yeah. you think? Uh, you know, I've always I've always had this kind of relationship with the Group of Seven stuff. I, I really like Tom Thompson's work. Um, and I went to an exhibit of his work like, years ago, and I really enjoyed it. I can't say I can get behind a lot of the other Group of Seven uh, stuff. You know, it's kind of, it's um, it's part of the colonial history, I think, of Canada. It's, uh, you know, the kind of stories of arriving in Algonquin Park and seeing this pristine sort of place and falling in love with it and painting it. That narrative of, like... Um, you know, empty space, uh, unoccupied space is found yes. in the group of seven works. And, yeah. um, you know, it's not, it's not really a story that resonates with me. Um, you know, I like rocks. I like, you know, sitting on rocks, sunbathing on rocks, but seeing mm-hmm. a painting of a rock is just kind of like, well, yeah, you know, Georgian Bay is beautiful, but, uh, do I need to see a painting of a Georgian Bay? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And I, I like, um, I kind of agree. I like Thompson cause He's doing something a little. He's doing something different. But then, yeah, the people that yeah. follow him. So I have one front down here uh, by J. E. H. Thompson. It's just like, it's like a landscape painting of, um, looks like a lake, and there's it's devoid of human. It's devoid of any sort of personality, um, and it's just sort of. To me, I found that the group of seven are replicating or trying to replicate what Thompson, Tom Thompson, was doing. And then Emily Carr, the reason I like her so much is she was also doing her own thing out there. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But let's move into some of the more postmodern work uh, that's out there. Um, we may even call it surrealist. Lauren mm. Harris. Yeah. So this was something interesting. I didn't know. Uh, might be a male, might be a female. I'm not sure. Probably a male. Uh, Lauren Harris uh, was part of the group of seven, uh, but I would call him a surrealist. Uh, if you look at the paintings, and I have like maybe five here in front of you, Phil, um, they kind of are reminiscent to me of Salvador Dali. Yep. Yep. You know, Absolutely. and Salvador Dali is like probably my favorite all time painter. I just love everything he does. And I, I like the play of shadows here and the, the interesting experimental lines that he's using, and also the vividness of the of the pictures. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, some of Harris's stuff, it's different than the group of seven in that it shows the vulnerability of the landscape. It's not necessarily, um, about a celebration of it, but it's uh, about our vulnerability towards it. Uh, that's how I kind of read, 
uh, Harris's uh, kind of painting. So, you know, it will be of a, you know, it's a surrealist representation of a mountain, for example. Uh, but that mountain has an expanse between um, us as the viewer and it as the focal point in the painting. And that kind of large, barren, frozen expanse is what we would have to navigate and figure out how to overcome or live with it, right, in Canada. So I think yeah. Harris's and stuff touches uh, a little bit more on, um, you know, our vulnerabilities as Canadian vis-a-vis the wilderness and not necessarily only a celeb- celebration of the wilderness as pristine, but that it can be dangerous. It is dangerous. That's my mm. interpretation of Harris's work anyway. And I like what you said there about the vastness of the landscape, because when you look at it, is work it's like the landscape it it's got depth like it's got vastness to it but then it's pushed up to the front to the foreground so it's like you're confronted with the vastness of the landscapes like it's right in your face and that's kind of the hallmark of what it means to be canadian so just below those i i have some the i only took one picture of emily carr because i think in the future i'll do a whole we'll do a whole episode together if if you'll indulge me (laughs) but um this was is a rather famous painting and i got Little Miss Violet sleeping in her stroller in front of it. It's of um, these statues in front of a, a longhouse on the west coast of BC. And the thing I love about Emily Carr is you can see here the dark kind of tones and the same sort of colors that the group of seven use, but she's doing her own thing, kind of like Harris and uh, the Surrealist. She's got, mm. you know, it's a very realistic uh, picture, but it's also stylized like an impressionist would. So I kind of like Emily Carr. Yeah, and uh, Emily Carr was also an author, I believe. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they have an extraordinary um, museum in Vancouver. It's called the Emily Carr Museum, so that's why I'm like so familiar. It's uh, it's right. like our best museum right. in Vancouver, basically. So, Matt, uh, you know, continuing on this postmodern uh, sort of trend, um, what are your sort of um, reactions to the postmodern representation at the art gallery because postmodernism has kind of you know i'm i'm gonna say it out there it's kind of taken over art right now right everything is postmodern we need to be contemporary we need to be weird we need to do that kind of stuff right um but how do they kind of come across as representing that in this particular gallery Okay, so I included um, maybe, I don't even know, like seven pictures, right? Because as you say, Phil, uh, postmodern art is uh, is really taking over. And because the installments are so huge, they take over like multiple wings of an art gallery. So yeah. I've normally reacted emotionally with like repulsion to uh, postmodern art. <laughs> but for s- okay. whatever reason, I started getting it uh, th- on this visit, I think. Partially, it was because um, Melanie, uh, my wife, was having a lot of fun interacting and trying to interpret the uh, the installations. And also, Violet was awake at that time. So she was like in the carrier with Mel and just like kicking her legs and laughing at these camels, for example. So that's the first set of pictures I got in there. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like, and I'll get you to comment on this, but I feel like postmodern art is emotionally evocative, right? Sometimes people laugh. Sometimes people stop and contemplate and try to like interpret it like a snooty art person. But by and large, what I noticed on this visit was that everybody who encountered these installments emotionally reacted in one way or another to them. And I think that's what art's supposed to do. Right, right. Um, so I'm looking at one installation um, that you have a picture of. 
it kind of has an old Coke machine. It has a kind of a dude sitting down on a crate next to it. Um, looks like a clock on the wall. Uh, and then maybe a tire rack. Is this supposed to be like uh, in a garage maybe? Yeah, it's um, it's funny because it, this is the most literal postmodern art I've ever seen. I think it's literally that. It's just a guy sitting on a chair drinking a Coke uh, outside of a garage. <laughs> like okay. that's quite literally okay. all it is. There's like, which is interesting because there's no interpretation needed to be done there. It's just literal. Okay. Okay. That you know, postmodern is like post. Well, I, you know, postmodern art has. Uh, there's always an interpretation to be found. There's a message in there somewhere. Uh, I'm looking at this particular one. I don't see a message. Um, <laughs> no, no. But, I think maybe but, that is the interpretation. It's a literal interpretation, right? <laughs> Uh, which is okay. pretty postmodern. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I mean, it could be a commentary on like um, our dependence on vehicles. Uh, it could be a commentary on labor. It could be a commentary on commercialism. I don't know. That's the thing with postmodern art, Matt. Sometimes I just really don't know. Okay, so the next one, do you see it there? It's by Kent uh, Monkman. I can read the little. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of uh, describe this one. Uh, yeah, it, for sure. It, so it's an entire room. And, uh, you know, more and more postmodern uh, exhibits, if they have the space, will create entire rooms that you can kind of either look in or go and actually walk in. This one, it appears that you don't walk in it. Uh, you look in from the outside. Um, but it's a, a hospital room, right? So you have the typical hospital kind of technologies. You have a bed. You have one of those little trays that carry food on the side. Some chairs for, I guess, where your guests would sit. Uh, it appears like there's, um, you know, a TV up in the corner of the room, as many hospital rooms have. A chart on the wall. Um, it, you know, it has an IV bag and it has some monitor stuff. And then it has like a sexy nurse. So it has like one of those typical Halloween costumed sexy nurses standing there. And um, it, I don't quite get it again. Okay. Um, I, I don't so, really understand what's going on. Yeah, like me neither. I thought it was like... Maybe another literal one where it's maybe the artist lost somebody in their family and this is a recreation of the room that they passed away in or something. That's what I originally thought. And I okay. saw this when I was still looking for Mel. So I just took a quick picture of it and a quick picture of the explanation. So I'll read the explanation just because there's some naughty words in there. So I I'll spare you, Phil. Um, mm. So it's from 2015, actually, even though it looks like it's a little bit older, like it looks like it's from the 60s or something, right? It's called Casualties of Modernity, and it's by Kent Monkman. He's a Cree artist. Uh, he was born in 1965 in St. Mary's, Ontario, and he uh, works out of Toronto. Um, okay, so in this installation, Monkman's drag queen alter ego, Miss Chief Eagle Testicle, an agent provocateur and trickster, appears on screen and in mannequin form clad in a PVC nurse's outfit, tending to her patient, the wheezing... Uh, something outbound I can't see the work is a satirical look at uh, art through Miss Chief's eyes foregrounding the artist's critique of modern art through the downfall of something romanticism something and something else I can't see primitivism or something. <laughs> just something something so, okay uh, it's wheezing cubism uh, oh wheezing cubism yeah so okay. in the description so in this postmodern description they use the word cubism just to, you know, just just, just to okay. be bohemian about the whole thing. <laughs> Wheezing cubism as well. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, so like, okay. So it's a drag queen nurse. All right. Okay. Yeah, I know. And it's like, to me, I'm like, yeah, all right. <laughs> you just move on. So like you turn around, you walk around the corner and you're confronted with the next picture there. You can see Melly poking through. What do you see there, Phil? Uh, okay. So the next picture, I don't know if this is postmodern art. It looks like it's a cross between one of those, uh, camel sort of things that you'd see in star Wars, uh, and maybe like a woolly mammoth. Oh, That's, a tauntaun. Uh, yeah. A tauntaun <laughs> and a, like a, an, an ancient woolly mammoth, uh, like hybrid with a camera in the corner. Because there's a camera yeah. in the corner. I don't know why I noticed that, but okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, the surveillance camera as well. Yeah, the uh, look of bewilderment on everybody's face is uh, it's just this room, and there's like maybe four or five camels. And, dude, everybody was coming up to these things, taking pictures, selfies, Instagramming the shit out of it. Like, this was, I think, when I started getting modern art because I was seeing the reaction and the pure joy on people's face when they're p- interacting with these fairly ugly camels. And they're they're pretty, there's nothing going on. It's just like the description in the corner is like the artist over this span of years, like between 2010 and 2012, just really got into camels and just started painting camels and doing sculptures of camels. And there's the camel exhibition or whatever. That's just it. (laughs) Uh, Now I'm looking at the next kind of room and it appears to be three neon lights uh, but not on the ceiling kind of turned vertically on the wall yeah yeah far okay. out man so moving on so the next one <laughs> uh, yeah, the next one looks uh like a wall of quarters or dimes or nickels or something yeah yeah a wall of quarters um but the artist made each of the quarters them herself and they all had okay. different letters on them all right, wall of quarters. Uh, so, moving on. Um, honestly, the I remember the the caption there. It was so obvious. It was like a critique on um, the modern economy and the financial okay. sector, basically. Sure. Yeah. All right. So, so you this know, next this one. Is, this the, this is my yeah, thing sorry. with um, yeah. you know postmodern art, Matt. Um, I can be an artist uh, by making a wall of quarters. You know, yeah. I, I just take a bunch yeah. of quarters and then I, you know, they're nicely lined up. Like they're the, like they are perfectly lined up. They're, they're glued nicely to the wall. All right. All right. What's next, Matt? <laughs> Actually, they were dangling on strings, kind of like something you'd see in like a 1970s movie separating rooms, like those walls of beads or whatever. Oh, <laughs> bead curtains. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so, okay. so it takes worse. it up That's another notch. Um, so the next picture is this iridescent interesting landscape it looks like they're painting mountains but it's all with the that rainbow iridescent colors now i thought this was actually pretty good like i thought like this is a good painting yeah like i could hang that on my wall and be happy with that so it's funny even within this postmodern period that we're living in it's still you still see like what i would call like you know proper art coming out here right proper form yeah and i mean i think you know, and a future episode, uh, I'm going to be talking about Banksy, um, some Warhol, and some, uh, you know, big kind of names in postmodernism that do big exhibits, and you kind of have to tilt your head a little bit. So that's one form of postmodern art, and, you know, we've been kind of laughing at it a little bit, but I think uh, if you dig deep, there are meanings and representations behind it, and they're created for a reason, 
so I'm not necessarily, you know, uh, I'm not saying no to all postmodern art. Yeah. I, like, I, I feel like I'm, I'm becoming more on board with it. Like, and that, that's actually kind of exciting because now there's this whole new world, but then also as I'm learning more about it, I'm like, okay, no, that just is, that's just ridiculous. Like those fluorescent lights that are standing on end. That's just stupid. <laughs> Yeah, and, yeah. You, know, you know, I think I think one of the one one of the keys to postmodernism, Matt, is that we need to interact with the art rather than passively mm-hmm. consume it, right? And there's a difference between the interpretation of the artist, uh, the creator, and the interpretation from the consumers. Uh, you know, um, us basically walking into a gallery and looking at it. Um, so I think. You know, if we wanted to kind of dig a bit deeper into postmodernism, and I think we will in a future episode, but let's we can start here a little bit. Um, I think there is a difference between interpretations, um, and it's kind of the point of postmodernism. Yeah, totally. And I like so maybe for one of my final thoughts here, there's two more pictures. They're right at the end. They're the last two that I'll get you to look at. There, the last two that we'll post on on our website. Um, one of them is of a stag head with its antlers all carved up, and the the head of the stag is made out of uh, some sort of rock, like a highly polished rock. Um, the detail work on the carvings uh, by this, I'm pretty sure, indigenous uh, artist, um, it's just exceptional. But this happened to be made in, I think it was 2012. So it falls within this time of postmodern okay. art, but it's just like a beautiful sculpture. But then the last picture on the bottom there, what do you see? It's Mel and Violet, and then there's a line there. You see that? Uh, not really. <laughs> it's no, a wire that. that is no, just it's a, a wire that connects that corner to the corner up at the top opposite. And so if you walk through this room, which jo- okay. joins two different exhibit rooms, um, if you're not watching where you're going, you're gonna get you're gonna catch that right in your throat, basically. Okay. That is that that's the point. Yeah. Yeah. It's like maybe I don't know. All I thought was I better start paying attention to this art around here. This, this art is not safe. <laughs> so, so, yeah, <laughs> this art is not safe. <laughs> so that was my trip to the museum. All right. Do you have any final thoughts, Matt? Uh, uh, that's pretty much it. Like uh, we could dig in more with the colonial stuff. And but by and large, man, I um, I got to learn about a lot of uh, new uh, painters and artists that I didn't know about. I got to learn a lot more about the Group of Seven, which I'm actually happy about, and then found a, a an appreciation, let's say, for postmodern art. So um, all in all, it was a good trip to the museum. Oh, I will say at the end, if you are to visit this uh, museum, they just opened a cafe where you can get like wine or beer as well as really, really good-looking food. So I bought Mel a dessert, and I got myself a Bose. Nice. Yeah, make sure you hit that up at the end. (laughs) Very nice. So what were you yourself? Do you got any final thoughts there? Uh, You know, I would, uh, not really. I think um, if you can, go and consume some art in any of its forms. I think, uh, you know, I was watching an episode of uh, Star Trek uh, Deep Space Nine. Uh, You know, unfortunately, it was like season four, episode (laughs) two, I think. Uh, And uh, there's this line that Cisco uh, tells to Jake. And he says, uh, you know, I know you're writing and you're a writer, but take a minute to lift up your head, look around. Uh, this is the world. This is what you mm-hmm. write about. 
I kind of feel the same about art sometimes. You know, I think sometimes all we need to do is kind of look up from our screens, look up from our writing or our reading or whatever we're doing. Uh, take a minute to look around. This is happening around us. And, you know, to, to take it in a little bit, even if we don't understand it, you know, somewhere down the line, that wired room might make sense to you. <laughs> You might say, yeah, okay, I get it. I get why there's a wire in the room now. Right? <laughs> the camels made a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh, <laughs> we're going to leave you with a song from Evil Knievel uh, called Love and Hate. It's off their album Winter Rider. You can find Evil Knievel on Facebook at Evil Knievel Band. You can find them on their website, www.evilknievel.com. And you can also find them on Bandcamp. Uh, you know, tell them that we sent you. Send them a little message through Facebook, whatever. Say some intellectual musings. Turn me on to you. You guys are great. Uh, you know, whatever you want to say. If you want to get a hold of us, we are on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. We are on Facebook at The Simpod. You can email us, semi-intellectual at gmail. Com. Our website, including the archives to the show, is thesim.podbean.com. Uh, so, once again, this is Love and Hate by Evil Knievel. And when we come back, we have some thank yous to give out to our listeners.
Hey everyone, welcome back. I'm here with Phil Primo. And Phil, you've got uh, some iTunes uh, reviews for for our listeners to read out. So why don't you take it away, bud? I do have some iTunes reviews, and we're going to do this uh, every week. So if you send us a review, we will plug you. We will read your review. Uh, this one comes from Lindsay MJ44 from the USA says, really cannot say enough great things about this show. These guys are not only incredibly smart and very knowledgeable, dot, dot, dot. They are also very funny and amazing people. Definitely give it a listen. You won't regret it. Uh, Thank you, Lindsay, MJ44, for that. And the second one I have from Sam Culper uh, from the USA says, enjoyed the show. Keep it up. If you like podcasts, Please check out these folks and support other independent podcasters. Keep listening. Hashtag podtester. Hashtag Podern family. Hashtag 100 pods. Hashtag PWLT. Hashtag underdog pods. Thank you, Sam, wow. uh, for the for that. And That's for awesome. those hashtags. That's hashtag those smorgasbord. Great to plug. <laughs> um, it is a hashtag smorgasbord, Matt. And I'm going to give you another thing. To check out, you know, people ask us what's the best platform to give reviews. Uh, those come from iTunes, so iTunes is a good place. Facebook is a good place, but here's an even better place, Matt. It is Podknife. Uh, you can find them on Twitter at Podknife. And if you haven't heard of Podknife, Podknife is an attempt at building a better podcast directory by providing deeper and better connected information about podcasts, podcasters, and publishers. Uh, that anyone can access from any device. So the Podknife database goes beyond what's in the RSS feed of a podcast. That's, you know, what we're used to seeing on iTunes. Uh, But Podknife includes information that you can't find in other directories, like the host's name, Twitter handles, customized tags to improve upon traditional Apple podcast categories, social media links of the podcasts, production locations, and even more. (laughs) So more podcasts are being added all the time. And uh, exciting new features like podcast of the day are happening. So check out Podknife. You will find us as a podcast of the day this coming week. Uh, and check them out, Matt. I cannot, I cannot say how fun Podknife is. So they do this thing on Twitter where every time they add a new podcast to the directory, they send out a tweet with the hashtag podcasts at Podknife, and they link to the podcast. It is great and you you know that they're actually listening to them because in the tweet and in the write-up they 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 go beyond just saying hey here's the name of the podcast check it out they actually give a line or two about what it's about so they're listening uh and you should listen through podknife check them out they're on twitter at podknife uh and you can leave reviews so if you want to leave a review for us Check us out on Podknife. You should say hi to Podknife right now, buddy, because you, we know they're listening. So that's kind of creepy. I'm looking over my shoulder. Hi, Podknife. <laughs> they, they're out there. They're the dark web, the interwebs. Uh, that's awesome, man. Like them. for me as a PC user, I, I want to give iTunes reviews, but it's so cumbersome. So I'm going to like deep dive on Podknife right after we're yeah. done recording this. So that's awesome, man. If I say Podknife one more time, Matt, I think people are going to ask me to shut up so i'm just gonna shut up right now uh we're gonna leave you with another song uh from evil knievel this one is called i'm alive it is off their album winter rider uh and we're gonna talk to you all next week 